Jeremiah 13 is the book and the chapter we'd like you to turn tonight, Jeremiah chapter 13. I'm not a perfect pastor, but I found the description of one. It was sent to Ann Landers, and she published it in her column. This is how it goes, the perfect pastor. The results of a computerized survey indicate the perfect pastor preaches at least 15 minutes. I blew that one. He condemns sin but never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old and has been preaching for 25 years. He's wonderfully gentle and handsome, loves to work with teenagers, spends countless hours with senior citizens. He makes 15 calls daily on parish families, shut-ins, and hospital patients, and he is always in his office when needed. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this letter to six other parishes that are tired of their pastors too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. The nation of Judah hated their pastor, Jeremiah. He was the one God sent to them. He was the spokesperson God used to speak to them. And he spoke faithfully to them over and over again, and over and over again, they were not willing to listen. If only a few people would have said, Jeremiah, your words are life and they are from God and we will receive them and we will change because of them. It would have made it all worth it. But he really didn't have any visible outward fruit to speak of. Fifty-five years ago, Dr. Billy Graham started his ministry in Los Angeles, California. He's preached around the world and he just finished a crusade recently there. He has preached the gospel to more people than anyone who has ever lived in history. Anyone who has ever lived in history. Billy Graham has preached the gospel to more people, and he has seen incredible results. 2,600 years ago, Jeremiah preached the message God sent him to preach, and zero people responded. I mean zero, zippo, nada. Nothing, no one. In fact, he gets persecuted because of his faithfulness to the Lord. So, in this chapter, God will stoop to another level to get their attention. If they won't listen to the words of the prophet, then God will be even more demonstrative. And I've learned something about some of the signs and wonders of the Bible. We think, I want to see signs and wonders And you know what? So do I. But I've discovered that sometimes God has to use signs and wonders, the dramatic, because people won't listen any other way. You say, oh, I'd love to have a life like Saul of Tarsus. Would you really? Let's see. He was so stubborn that God had to knock him off his horse and see a blinding light for him to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, if if he'd have started that way, if he'd have just said at the beginning, Lord, I'm open, what do you want me to do? He wouldn't have had to gone through all that, but he did. And so God is very dramatic in these verses. 
Chapter 13, verse 1, God becomes Jeremiah's fashion consultant. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and get a linen sash, put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. This is a thigh-length waistcoat made out of linen. The best way to put it in our terms is it was like ancient underwear. And God said, put it around you. It was linen. And linen came from Egypt in those days, and it was very costly. And really the only application for linen in those days among the people of Israel is that the priests wore it when they officiated in the temple. It was costly. Because it was a linen waistcoat and it was wealthy, it spoke of the pride of the people. Because it was something that was to be close to the skin, it spoke of the intimacy that God wanted to have with His people. Both of those elements are included. Now look at the third verse. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying... Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now right off the bat, we notice a difference between Jeremiah's attitude and the people's attitude. Whenever God spoke, Jeremiah said, okay, done. Whenever God spoke to the people of Judah, by and large, they wanted nothing to do with the word of the Lord. They rebelled. Now, the Euphrates River from Jerusalem would be a long walk. 500 miles or 560 miles from Jerusalem. I've traveled that way before. I traveled that way from Amman, Jordan, through the desert It took 24 hours one way by car. It was the most boring trip I ever took. And to make it worse, I was in a taxi cab with a chain-smoking Arab playing Madonna tapes the whole way. It was like, ah! 24 hours of that? That's like the judgment of God. Because of the long trip, because of the 500-mile distance from Jerusalem, some people have supposed that this really didn't happen. He really didn't go all the way to the Euphrates River, and here's why. Not only because of its distance, but the word in Hebrew, Euphrates, is the word in its root, frath, frath, go to frath. And uh, there's an interesting town just five miles away from Jerusalem, in those days known as Ephrathah, Ephrathah. And you'll see it recorded a couple of times in the Bible referring to Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There were two Bethlehems and one was designated by that second word. So some people think that um, that Jeremiah didn't leave Jerusalem and go 500 miles away, but just five miles away to a brook over by Bethlehem. 
However, it would seem to me that, in my opinion, he didn't go five miles, he went 500 miles. He did it because God told him to do it, and he did it because that is where the children of Israel would eventually be taken captive. They weren't taken captive to Bethlehem. They were taken captive past the Euphrates River into Babylon. And yes, it was wartime conditions, and I know that there were Assyrians and Babylonians and the traffic was difficult, but there was plenty of time for this to happen because in the very next verse it says, It came to pass after many days, which would suggest a length of time would give him plenty of time to get there. An indefinite period of time, at least, is suggested. So it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates, and I dug it, and I took out the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash, ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Makes sense. You put a fine linen garment in a hole in the rock in a moist dirty place like the river Euphrates by the bank somewhere, there's going to be natural deterioration, natural degradation. The integrity of the material will be compromised. It's ruined. It's good for nothing. The moisture, the dirt. Some time ago when I was in New Mexico and I worked at the worked out at the gym every day, I had a gym bag. And I'd throw my stuff in there. And one day I had forgotten that I threw the towel that I had used in the gym. It was wet. And I threw it in my gym bag. Zipped it up. Uh, I left it alone for quite some time. Several weeks later, when I unzipped that and, you know, my socks had been in there, T-shirt that I worked out had been in there, the towel the mildew, and, and all of just the natural processes, when you opened that gym bag, boy, was it ripe. <laughs> I tell you, when Jeremiah took that sash that had been in that little dank hole and he took it out and he, it stunk, it was horrible. And this was a word picture for the prophet. And the prophet would then tell it to the people to get their attention of what God would do to the pride of these people. Then the word of the Lord came to me again, verse 8, saying, Thus says the Lord, in this manner, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had made many mistakes in their past. One of their mistakes is that they had trusted in foreign alliances for their safety. At, once they tr at one time they trusted in Egypt and tried to make an alliance with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. Later on they forged an alliance with Assyria to protect them from the Babylonians. Instead of trusting God, they trusted in the nations that were around them, that they could sign a compact with, a, a treaty. And also they turned to the gods of these other nations and started worshiping the gods of these nations and in so doing forsaking the living God, breaking the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. They did this kind of stuff incessantly. They, in their pride, became lofty, wanted to be like other nations, forsook the Lord. So rather than being like that beautiful linen sash that would cling to the Lord, it became unprofitable and good for nothing. So in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words 
And notice this, who follow the dictates of their hearts. You know what that means? To follow the dictates of their hearts. When a person forsakes God's revelation, they then lean on their own imagination. And that is idolatry. When a person forsakes the revelation that is the Bible, what God has said about himself, and starts relying on his own imagination. Now, we live in a country filled with idolaters. And I can prove it to you. Go out tomorrow and talk to somebody who's not a believer and just start talking about God. And you're probably in the course of those conversations going to hear something like, well, that's what you picture God as. Now, I picture God as, and fill in the blank, some benign grandfather who's in heaven, looks down on people, is nice to everybody, whatever it might be. They have their own imaginary view, their own picture painted by the dictates of their hearts, rather than the revelation of holy God coming from holy scripture. That is always the beginning of idolatry. Whenever you forsake revelation and you lean on imagination, you have idolatry. So God says they follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. So God graciously interprets this whole scenario for Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah, what you have done is what I'm going to do. Just like you took that sash, which had a purpose and a goal, and it was thwarted because it was ruined, so it is with the people of Judah, Jeremiah. I had a great plan for them. I had my purpose all set out. But that plan, that purpose, that goal has been thwarted by their sin, by their idolatry, by their spiritual adulteries, not glorifying God. Look back at verse 10 and verse 11 and ask yourself this question. Is verse 10 truer of you than verse 11, or is verse 11 truer of you than verse 10? You see, there's a description in verse 10 of this good-for-nothing rotting sash. I had a purpose and a goal for it. Could, could that be truer of you that your life is like a dirty sash polluted by sin? You've become so self-centered you've left the revelation of God? Or is verse 11 a better description of you? Like a waist cloth clinging closely, tightly, intimately to the Lord. That was the purpose and goal. When God created the heavens and the earth and he put man upon the earth, that was God's goal for mankind. Intimacy relationship, fellowship with man that he put upon the earth. That's why there's a lovely description of of the Garden of Eden when God created the heavens and the earth. It says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day or the early evening, the late afternoon. And he cried out, Adam, where are you? Sort of like it's afternoon. It's the time we usually hang out and take a walk together. Where are you, Adam? God created Adam for fellowship with himself, intimacy with himself. Verse 12, 
is another illustration. The sash was one. The linen garment was one. The second one is one of the bottles, the wine bottles or the water bottles. Therefore you shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. Now that was an old saying. It was an old um, description of prosperity in those days. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. It was a, a hope, a designation, sort of like Americans used to say, a car in every garage, or in the pre-war days, a chicken in every pot. Every bottle shall be filled with wine was an expression of confidence of future prosperity. And they will say to you, here's Jeremiah saying what they already know, a common axiom, a, a, a word picture that they were used to, a saying that they had heard all their lives. He would say that. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? And you will say to them, wouldn't that be great if the Lord gave you that kind of direction every morning? That you're going to go to the market and you're going to meet a man and he has black hair and you're going to say this to him and then he's going to say that and then you're going to say this. That's how it was for Jeremiah. You're going to say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. This is the meaning of that. He uses a common phrase, a car in every garage. We know that. Prosperity for everyone. Every bottle will be filled with wine. We know that. And then he will reapply and give a different meaning to that common meaning or understanding that they had of that saying. Not, there's going to be prosperity, but this city will be drunk. Now, drunkenness was a picture the prophets would often use, not of physical drunkenness, but of confusion, pandemonium, panic. And he is picturing the Babylonian siege when the entire city will be reeling, drunken in confusion and pandemonium because the enemies of God have become the very instruments of God for judgment. And that's why he says, you will say to them, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. That is bewilderment. That is fear, pandemonium. I'll give you a little scripture you can write on the side in the margin of your Bible to uh, sort of buttress that. Psalm 60, verse 3 says, You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. The wine of confusion is what is the meaning here. The Lord Jesus spoke of the day that is coming upon the earth, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation period, as one of great bewilderment, pandemonium, fear. He said, as a description, men's hearts will be failing them for fear and the expectation that is coming upon the earth. That's the idea of filling everyone with the drunkenness of confusion. And verse 14, I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them here and give ear do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. The real culprit, 
the real issue, the core of the issue was their pride. You see, if you want to make God your enemy pretty quickly, be prideful. Nothing will set God against you faster than a prideful heart. Did you know that? The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Quickest way to get and receive God's grace is to humble yourself. Quickest way to be God's enemy or have God against you is to resist him because God will resist you because of pride. It was pride that took Satan, Lucifer, out of heaven. It was pride that deposed King Saul from off the throne in Israel. It is pride that destroys families and marriages and friendships and relationships and ministries and churches. Somebody gets puffed up with pride because God uses them, and that's the first step down. And I've seen it not only in Christian people, I've seen it in pulpit people, ministries. I'm God's anointed. So what? Don't touch me, I'm God's anointed. Okay, relax. You don't have to worry about it then if you're God's anointed. But here's what happens. It's it's sort of like the woodpecker. You may have heard the story. He was pecking away with his beak on the tree over and over and over again, just pecking, 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 no results. Then suddenly lightning came from the sky because a storm was brewing. Lightning came and struck the dead tree where the woodpecker had been pecking. He quickly flew away. It cut in two. It shattered in two. And the woodpecker looked back and smiled and said, ha, Look what I just did. That's what some people do in the work of the Lord. Look what I just did. It is pride. The people of Judah had become pride. They were God's chosen people, they said. Favored group. But the sash was ruined. The bottles will be filled with pandemonium, with confusion, with drunkenness. And so what is the solution for it? Verse 16, give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. It was Satan who decided not to give glory to God. He was Lucifer. He was the anointed cherub that covers, Isaiah chapter 14 tells us, until in his heart he said, I will ascend to the heavens. I will make my throne where God's throne is. I will be like the Most High. Do you remember what the verse is after that? God speaks, you will be brought down to Sheol. So here's Satan going, I'm going to, aspire and get great and because I'm wonderful and I'll be like God. And God says, ooh, now you're going down, 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 buddy boy. And he wasn't his buddy boy anymore. On the contrary, Jesus Christ lived his life to glorify the Father. He was equal with God. He was God and is God the Son. Yet in heaven, the kenosis, Philippians tells us, he emptied himself, became of no reputation, humbled himself and became a man to the point of death. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So Satan said, I'm going up. God said, you're going down. Jesus said, I'll go down. The Father said, then I'll take you up. 
Here's the point. The way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. And that's the theme of this. God says, glorify God. Make it all about Him. But, verse 17, if you will not hear, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Pride always results in stealing away God's glory. And God says, give glory to God. Jeremiah says, give glory to God. We live in a culture, we mentioned Sunday, and we have to be aware of it. This is, we're bombarded with it. We are a, a, a culture that is infatuated with self. We are egocentric. We are self-centered. We make it all about our own personal comfort, what we want. And the slogans of the advertisers appeal to our fallen nature. You deserve a break today at McDonald's. Microsoft, where do you want to go today? Rather than, where does God want you to go? You will never see Bill Gates say, Microsoft, where does God want you to go today? Nike's original advertisement was, if it feels good, just do it. Now they shortened it to just do it. It becomes all about us. However, we were created to give glory to God. Revelation chapter 4, all things were created for thy pleasure. We exist for that reason. So, verse 18, say to the king and the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. Now, do you remember the lineup of kings that we told you about? The first king that uh, Jeremiah preached under was king what? Anybody. The first king, he was a good guy. Josiah. Josiah died. His son, Jehoahaz, reigned in the throne. 90-day wonder. Three months he was gone. Pharaoh took him down to Egypt. Pharaoh put Eliakim, changed his name to Jehoiakim. He was there for 11 years. After he got off the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, now Babylon, the Babylonians are becoming the world powers, he put Jehoiachin a.k.a. Jeconiah, a.k.a. Kaniah on the throne. He was there three months and ten days. This is the guy we're talking about. This 18-year-old king who was only on the throne three months had a mom. She was called the queen mother. In those days, if the king was young, he would be a co-regent with mama. And his mama was Nehushta. And both this kid who reigned three months, Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, and his mama, Nehushta, were prideful. And they would be punished in their pride by Nebuchadnezzar. That's, that's the reference here. Pride goes before destruction. And so, say to the king and the queen mother, humble yourselves, for your rule shall collapse. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Now, that verse may not seem like much, but it is significant because the description of that verse, the Babylonian siege, is exactly the manner that the Babylonians used to overtake Jerusalem. They came to the city and they surrounded it and they shut it up. They closed its gates. They wouldn't let anyone come in. They wouldn't let anyone go out. And they sat there 
and they waited in surrounding the city. Well, you can understand that there would be no merchants to come and and deliver groceries. Nobody could leave the city and water their fields or work with their flocks. Uh, No food, no water, starvation, thirst, famine, disease, and they waited until the people were weak, then they would build battering rams and besiege the walls. So this is exactly the method that was used later on by the Babylonians. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? Now here's Jeremiah looking out at the population. The Babylonians have so destroyed the city and the population has so withdrawn that there's seemingly no one left because of Nebuchadnezzar's forces. Years later, after the captivity, and they would return, how many years later? Seventy years later, they would come back to Jerusalem. By the time they came back, Not everybody wanted to come back. 50,000 of the total population taken away into Babylon decided, I'll go back. A very small remnant. So that by the time of Jesus Christ, some years later, when Jesus hit the scene in Judea, there were still one million Jews left in Babylon. They decided to live there, stay there. And a Jewish population grew in Persia, And in that part of the world, Iraq, Iran. What will you say, verse 21, what will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? That sudden, uncontrollable, unstoppable pain that a woman has when she's giving birth to a child and it will not cease till the baby is born. That's how the judgment's going to come. Fast, Furious, unquenchable, unstoppable, until the judgment is finished. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. Very interesting language. It's the language of a prostitute being raped, basically. So God is saying... You're going to cry out to me and you're going to say, why would God allow this to happen? And the message is, you've acted like a harlot by going out with other gods and entertaining other nations. And you would expect if you had that kind of flirtatious relationship with the world, that this would happen. Whoever sows to the flesh will eventually reap what? Corruption, Paul says. Verse 23, can the Ethiopian... Change his skin. Or the leopard its spots. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to evil. Now that was also an old proverb back in those days. Can an Ethiopian or an African change his skin color? No. Now this is way before the days of Michael Jackson and and the procedures that that are are available today. But uh, by and large, no. And can... uh, Can a leopard change its spots? No. And what is the point that Jeremiah is making? Simply this. Man is a sinner by nature. Just like a leopard is born with spots and just like an Ethiopian has a certain skin color or we have a certain skin color, we have a nature that is bound to sin. And that is a very important thing to understand that the Bible 
teaches us over and over again that all mankind, all of us are sinners. Not only by the choices we make, but by the nature that we possess. When Adam sinned, he acted as the federal head of all of humanity. And so Paul outlines it beautifully in Romans. Adam sinned, and sin entered into the world, and after sin entered, death entered, and then death spread to all man. And then he said death reigned over all. That is the outline that Paul uses in the book of Romans. Sin entered, death entered, death spread to all mankind. It reigned. And that was because Adam sinned, so that all of us now have a sin nature. Some theological circles like to call it original sin. We're sinners by choice, but we're also sinners by nature. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says we followed the dictates of our heart or the fantasies of our mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath. In the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul speaks about the natural man, what we are by nature. We were born with a sin nature. Now let me help you make this distinction. We are not sinners because we go out and commit sins. We go out and commit sins because we're sinners. Do you understand the difference? We don't, we're not sinners because we go out and, oh, well, I committed a sin, thus I'm a sinner. No, you already were a sinner. And you prove it by the things that are done in a lifetime, the sins that are committed. It's because it's the nature of man. We are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. If a dog barks in the distance at night, you don't say, that's a dog, because it barks. I can bark. I'm not a dog. You might say, I disagree with that. Well, that's okay. I'm not a dog because I barked. But it is that dog's nature to bark because it is a dog. Adam sinned and Adam acted as federal head and spread a nature to all of us. When I was a kid, my dad took us to one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, at the foot of the Grand Tetons is uh, Jackson Hole, and there's that beautiful Jackson Lake at the, at the foot of that, those beautiful mountains. Early in the morning, I was there, my, myself, my dad, and my three older brothers. It was a perfect, pristine morning. The lake was like glass. And when it's that glassy, it is like a mirror. The, the mountains in the lake look identical to the mountains on the horizon. It's perfect. Well, we're boys. It's nice to look at the lake and my mom and dad, oh, isn't that beautiful? No, we can make it better. It's perfect to skip stones on. And that first pebble shot across the lake. Just one throw of the stone caused ripples to go through the entire image of those mountains and mar the image, the reflection of the mountains. One kid tossed one stone. Ripple effect. Adam, however many years ago, threw one stone and marred the entire face of human nature. So that is the meaning that is tied into this verse as the prophet asked the question that was a common question, a common saying. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change its spots? 
then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Now, is there an answer to that question? It's a rhetorical question. The answer would be no. But there is, there, is there a solution to it? Yes, there is. And the solution is in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us what the solution is. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So no, the Ethiopian can't change its spots uh, or, or his skin. The leopard can't change its spots. The sinner has a sin nature, and the only solution is to become born again, a new creation in Christ by the work of Jesus Christ. So the solution to the problem in the Old Testament is found in the New. Therefore, I will scatter them like stubble, refers to chaff, the harvesting process, the stubble that would fall off of the winnowing process that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills of the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! Will you still not be made clean? The meaning of those verses is simply this. The punishment will fit the crime. You sinned publicly by going to the groves, the shrines of these gods and goddesses uh, out on the hillsides. And there you worshipped. And because you made a a public display of your worship of other gods, I'm going to make sure that you're shamed in public. The punishment will fit the crime. Now, chapter 14, we'll see how long we can go before our time's up, but I have a hunch that um, I can go fast and finish the chapter. Let me tell you what it is. Chapter 14 is a colloquy, a discussion, a dialogue between God and the prophet. God speaks, the prophet speaks, then God speaks, then the prophet speaks. And it's all concerning a drought. It hadn't rain. And if you know your Bibles, you know that Rain is very important for the land of Israel to survive. When God took them out of the land of Egypt and God said, I'm bringing you into a new land, he warned them. He said, the land that I'm bringing you into is not like the land you came from. You came from Egypt, you depended on the Nile River, and you diverted the Nile River to water your crops. But I'm bringing you into a land, Deuteronomy 11, of hills and valleys that drinks in the water of the rain of heaven. So that, Deuteronomy 28, you obey me, you follow me, you keep my laws, I'll make sure the rain comes and you'll have bumper crops. You disobey me, it ain't raining. So this rain lately, it's a good thing. (laughs) It's a good sign. God said, it won't rain. In fact, the heavens will become brass and the ground will become like iron and nothing will grow. That will be part of the judgment that I send upon you. So they're having a discussion about the droughts that would come upon the land. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Judah mourns, her gates languish. They mourn for the land, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded. And covered their heads because the ground is parched. For there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field because, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. 
They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there were or there was no grass. It's a picture of the entire land mourning, the people's mourning, the grass is mourning, the gates of the city are mourning. And by the way, when it talks about gates mourning, it's not like these stones are going, oh. The gates were the public places of discourse and information. The gate wasn't a little thing swinging on a hinge. It was a building attached to the wall. In fact, if you're coming to Jerusalem with us this year, we'll show you an ancient gate. It's lined. It's a square building lined with seats. The elders would sit there. Travelers would come there. The city folks would go. The judges would be there, adjudicate any case that needed to be adjudicated. So if you wanted to know what was going on in the next village or the next country, because travelers were going and telling their stories to the elders at the gates, that's where you got the information. That was USA Today or Israel Today. 3,000 years ago, 2,600 years ago. It was a place of joy, usually, excitement. Now it will be a place of mourning. All the news, God is saying, will be bad news. That's the picture of the gates mourning. The whole country is languishing. And notice what it says in verse 6. The wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. I've been told that donkeys have a keen sense of detecting moisture. So keen are they at detecting any kind of moisture or grass that the donkeys on the hills will catch the wind and put their heads toward the wind and sniff. And travelers, the Bedouins especially, will look at the donkey to see what the donkey is noticing and follow the donkey to the site of moisture or grass. So there's the picture. We're looking at the donkey. He's sniffing the wind. Where's the moisture? Where's the refreshment? There's none. There's none. Even that little bit that would be left that only the donkeys can find, can't find. That's judgment. Their eyes fail. Now, Jeremiah, verse 7, talks to God. Remember, it's that dialogue, that colloquy, that Discussion back and forth. Jeremiah prays, verse 7, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Very interesting. As I've read Jeremiah, I don't see where Jeremiah sinned. I mean, I know everybody's a sinner by nature and and by choice, but God is indicting the nation because of national sin, and we see it played out. They wanted to kill him. They didn't want to do anything he said. But Jeremiah faithfully followed the Lord, and yet... Yet, Jeremiah, the prophet, the holy guy, says, we have sinned. He identifies himself with the sins of his people. That's humility. He's identifying himself, not saying they, them, they deserve it. We, as your people, he identifies as being part of them, have sinned. So, Lord, he says, we're called by your name. Do not leave us. God answers. Thus says the Lord to his people. Thus they have loved to wander. 
there's God's description of his own people, the nation of Judah, called by his name, placed in his city, living by his covenant, supposedly. They have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. In the 1700s, there was a man by the name of Robert Robertson. Easy name to remember, isn't it? Robert Robertson. He wrote a song. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. In one of the verses, he based it upon verse 10 of this chapter. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love was one of the verses Robert Robertson wrote. He was describing mankind. We love to wander. We are by nature the children of wrath. All of us like sheep have gone astray. It is true. We're prone to wander. But what is interesting is this man of God later on did wander significantly. He backslid grossly, fell back into the same sins he grew up with that he had once repented of and became this minister of music and wrote songs, and and he backslid. One day he was traveling by coach, horse-driven coach, and there was a lady next to him reading a hymnal. And she happened to be reading the very hymn he wrote. And he was noticing her. He didn't know what it was that she was reading. He knew it was a hymnal. And she looked at him and said, Listen to this. And tell me what you think of it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Come, thou fount of every blessing. And she read the words. And he began to weep. He said, Madam, I'm the very one who wrote that very song. And I would give a thousand worlds had I them today to get the feelings back that I once had. Prone to wander. Oh, yes. Even he wandered. My people, God says, they're prone to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people or for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. Wow. Even the prophet's prayer would not be heard. And God says to Jeremiah, time out, stop, don't pray for this people anymore. You know why? Because the people themselves refused to repent. Oh, they were going to the temple. We saw that in chapter 7. Oh, they were still bringing the animal sacrifice thing. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There was no personal repentance. So God says, Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. Can I give you a suggestion? When you pray for your relatives and you pray for your friends who aren't saved, pray for their repentance. Pray for their repentance specifically because it is repentance that invites God's blessing. That God would break them. You say, break them? That, 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 that means God might do something severe. Well, isn't it worth it to get them out of hell and get them into heaven? Pray genuine repentance would take place. Because in Judah, let me tell you, they kept all the outward trappings of spirituality, but their hearts hadn't repented. And God said, because they're going through the motions, but their hearts aren't toward me, I'm going to consume them. Jeremiah, don't even pray anymore. It's over. 
So pray for their repentance. And I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Lord, they're getting false information from false prophets, from false ministers, that you're going to bless them. And they were. And you'll see more of it in this book. One of the easiest things to do is to make stuff up in the name of the Lord. Oh, I'm sensing right now from God. Oh, hold on. You know, I'm not going to negate that because the Bible says do not despise prophecy. I am open to prophecy when it's legitimate. But the Bible also says test all things and hold fast to that which is good. And the oldest trick in the book is God told me. Are you sure God told Oh, yeah, I had a vision. You sure it wasn't a burrito? You sure this is really from the Lord now? I have received over the years letters from prophets. They've told me they were prophets. And they have a message that God wants to share with me. And there's a common thread that runs through those letters. I am God's anointed one. You're not. God has a message for you. So he told me to tell you this message. When I get a letter like that, honestly, I put it down and I pray about it. Maybe it is a prophet. Maybe God really does need to get a message across. I want to be open to it. And then I start examining it. According to the scripture, according to what I might know about this person, according to what the person says and how he says it. After all, 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy is uh, edification, exhortation, or comfort. If it doesn't fit that, I throw it away. And I figure this way. Every morning I pray, and I have my devotional time, and I ask God to lead me. And I figure God's got my telephone number. And God can tell me what he wants to tell me. He doesn't need that guy to tell me unless I'm really a bonehead. And then I'm open. But if it's not from the Lord, I throw it away. So the false prophets came because the true prophet came. And whenever there is a true prophet, there will be false prophets. Guaranteed. You turn on the lights, the bugs are going to come. You bring in righteousness, you'll have unrighteousness. Wherever there's God, there's a Satan. Wherever there's Christ, there will be Antichrist. It's just how hell works. Hell responds to the righteousness of God. So wherever there is truth, there will be something false that would require true believers to use discernment on. Verse 14, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their hearts. (laughs) So Jeremiah, relax. Don't worry about them. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Whenever you turn on the news for a weather report and the meteorologist tells you the forecast for the next few days, you know it is purely a prognostication. It's their best guess. But we rely upon those guesses because we say they're educated and they're detailed enough because, after all, they gave us a five-day forecast. When the five-day forecast doesn't go like the meteorologist calls it, we get annoyed. Oh, 
They don't know. They're never right. (laughs) But that's just an annoyance. That's okay. But when somebody comes in your midst and gives you information that will alter your eternal forecast, they better be right. If they're not right, zero tolerance. You know why? Because they're telling people about eternal matters. And whenever you give directions on how to go to heaven, you better have your game down. You put a person in an airplane and give him coordinates from California to Hawaii, if he's off one degree, he'll die. They'll end up in the ocean. Those coordinates have to be exact. And so when it comes to getting to heaven and spiritual matters, that's why the Bible says, be not many masters, be not many teachers. You will receive the greater judgment. These prophets would, and God tells them how. Therefore, you shall say this word to them, let my eyes flow with tears day and night. Let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has broken with a mighty stroke, a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, and behold, those slain with a sword. If I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. So Jeremiah, it is hearing God express, God expresses his own grief over the people. And he says, Jeremiah, the same grief that I experience, the same emotion that I emote, I want you to express and emote. One of the reasons I believe God chose Jeremiah, this emotional weeping prophet, is because he had the Lord's heart. He had the same feelings and emotions toward his people, this weeping prophet, as the Lord God did weeping over the sins of his people. So much like the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 9 tells us, And seeing the multitude, he was moved with compassion, for they were like sheep that had no shepherd. The compassionate Lord. When we see a crowd, what do we say? Oh, what a bother, what an annoyance, what a delay. Why are they here? This is my freeway. How dare they drive on my lane? (laughs) What a delay. When God sees a crowd, he sees not only an opportunity, but his heart breaks if that crowd isn't following him. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul, Jeremiah asked God, loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good, and for time of healing, but there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness. Notice the inclusiveness. The iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? Therefore, we will wait for you since you have made all of these. I'll sum it up by saying this is what he's saying. Oh, God, we blew it. Oh, God, you can fix it. We blew it. You can fix it. We sinned. You can heal. You can forgive. In the early days of the automobile, when the car of choice was the Model T. A man was driving his Model T down the streets. It broke down. He got out there to restart it. Now, in those days, he didn't put a key in the ignition. You took a hand crank. 
and you put it up front, and you crank that thing up and try to get the generator going and the magneto working and the pistons going. And he was out there and he couldn't fix it and he opened the hood and he tinkered with things and he kicked the tires. A guy driving by in a very expensive car, a limousine, custom-made Model T limousine, saw the man kicking the tires, stopped his car, got out. He was dressed in a beautiful suit. He said, can I, can I be of service? Well, I don't know what you can do. My car broke down. He goes, let me take a look. He opened the hood, moved a couple things, said, try it now. Started right up. The man was amazed. Wow, who are you? The man said, I'm Henry Ford. <laughs> I built this baby. And because I built it, I know exactly how to make it work. We broke it. You can fix it. Our lives are broken. All of us. <laughs> all of us have baggage. We're all broken. God can fix it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Oh, Lord, how holy, hallowed is your name. We desire, Lord, your kingdom to come. We want more than anything your will to be done, not just as it is every minute in heaven, but on earth, in our lives. Lord, you know what we need. So because of that, we ask that you'd give us today our daily bread. Just what we need, just for today. And we repent for the times we worry so much about tomorrow and next week. Give us what we need today, our daily bread. Forgive us, Lord, our sins, the things that have broken us. And at the same time, Lord, we think of those who have sinned against us. And we just want to say in your presence, we forgive them. Because they did what they did because they're broken too, just like we are. Lord, keep us from being overcome by temptation. Lead us out of it. Don't lead us into it. Deliver us from the evil one. Because, Lord, just like the prophet told the nation to give glory to God, yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. Now and forever, may our lives point to you. And whatever tonight may be broke in us, would you fix? What relationships are broke, will you fix? What areas of our spiritual walk are missing and broken, would you fix? What healing needs to take place, would you fix? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.